Good morning. Kind of loud. I'm Pastor Craig here, if you're visiting. Uh, one of the, the pastors here, and we are in uh, our Advent series. Not necessarily because we believe God commands us to celebrate Advent or Christmas, but because our culture and everyone around us is talking and singing and experiencing Christmas, whether we want to or not, right? It's all around us, and I, I have a confession to make. I don't really like Christmas, um, and it's not just because of all the ridiculous commercials. Um, I mean, who's buying cars for their spouses? Is this a thing? Is this? Uh, but. It actually is kind of personal for me, I think, why I don't like Christmas. Um, because growing up, having one mom, a mom who's Jewish and, and dad who's Christian, to me, I had this self-identity of being half Jewish and half plain. Plain. I saw my Christian side as the normal. The plain, the, the lamestream, if you will. And once I converted to, to Christianity in college uh, and, and really only experiencing Christianity and living as a Christian in places where it's the minority, it just never sat right with me that it seemed to be such a normal, mainstream thing that everyone all of a sudden is celebrating Christmas. It didn't make sense. I think that's probably why. It's not so much the commercials and the consumerism, and obviously that's part of it. Eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, that's literally what the, the atheist fools do in, in Scripture. But I'm not here to be your Grinch. I don't really care about your Christmas tradition necessarily, but I do care about how we understand the coming of Christ. What are we supposed to learn from the birth narrative of John the Baptist about the coming of Christ, about the coming of the day of the Lord, as Malachi put it. Because I think when you read this birth narrative and when you read the first couple chapters of both Luke and Matthew, and then you try to celebrate Christmas the way we do it in our culture, there's such a huge disjunct. There's such a huge difference and tension. We need to make sure we know what we're talking about, know what we're doing. So let's pray and we'll jump into that. God, we do praise you. We praise you for this day that you have set apart that we would rejoice in the power of your resurrection on this first day of the week that we get to worship in your presence. We thank you that you have come by the power of your Holy Spirit that Jesus has come, Lord, that you forgive us in the gospel. And we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Open us up. Encourage those who are brokenhearted. Challenge those who are stubborn that we would meet you in your word, that we would be open to where you would have us hear you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at it in, in two main parts, this birth narrative. First, simply just learning from John the Baptist, and then 
what it would mean to imitate him or imita- and imitate the calling that he has. But first, I do want to do some, some learning from John the Baptist because, again, it's, we have this uh, disjunct, I think, in our culture. And the first three, three minor points under the, the first heading. The first one is that what does it mean for the Lord to come? It means that the king has come. If we're to read this birth narrative properly, we need to realize the context that this story is uh, placed in. Because if we're reading our Bibles the way that we are supposed to be reading, you can read the story of John the Baptist's narrative as if it's an Old Testament story. It is so stock full of Old Testament references, quotations. You feel like you're reading another story out of Genesis or Exodus. And it's perfect, right, that we've had other ancient births, whether it's Samson or Isaac, the ones that we've had in our series, to now come to John the Baptist because it feels like it's right in step. It's totally in step with the Old Testament. Let me point out why I'm arguing that. One is the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest, and we're going to talk about what he does there with the incense. He's a priest, and Elizabeth is from a family of priests. We are told that they are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. All, almost all of this is just straight out of the Old Testament. Those are the commendations that you would expect of Old Testament figures and prophets and, and heroes. Righteous, blameless, same words, same phrases. Zechariah, as a priest, finally gets his name called. So he's, he has this opportunity. This is not something they do every week where they get to go in and do the incense thing. This is a thing that he would have gotten to do once in his life. There are a lot of priests and, and limited times that the priest can go into the Holy of Holies. And so you have this huge moment for Zechariah where he gets to where he gets to go into the uh, Holy of Holies. And did you notice the incense gets repeated three times? What's going on with the incense? The incense is right there in the middle before the Ark of the Testimony where the Ten Commandments are at, in front of the mercy seat where God, we are told, is present. The God of the Old Testament, if he is anywhere, he is right there. Doing the work of the incense, burning the incense, the prayers of the people of Israel in the presence of God. Zechariah, in that moment, is the holiest man on earth. He is in God's immediate presence. This is his dream, if you will. That's what he gets to do. So you see why I say this is a story out of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is coming. He is coming. Mark's Gospel starts off by referencing that Isaiah 40 passage, comfort, comfort ye my people. And then he goes on to say, prepare the way of the Lord. He is going to come. That's what we have here. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Finally, 
long-expected Israel is going to meet its God and be what? Saved, forgiven, redeemed. So the king has come, and he has come to judge. So there's a lot of judgment going on in our passage. And as we're going to see, there's a lot of judgment going on with John the Baptist. Because when the kingdom of God comes, and when the king comes, Israel knows that's going to include judgment. It included it the first time around when they were entering the promised land. Lots of judgment, right? The Canaanites were under judgment because Israel had this job of setting up the kingdom of God on earth in a physical way. And if you cannot be in the presence of God, you will be judged. So the judgment is not surprising for Israel, but it's, it's the Old Testament expectations being met, but with a twist. And we start seeing little hints of the expectations not being met quite as they expected, at least as Zechariah and, and the Jews of Jesus' time quite expected. The first thing, I think, is that Zechariah is struck mute. You wouldn't have expected that from a righteous Jew, and we're going to come back to that. The second hint is this reference to Elijah. Elijah uh, is promised to come, right, from the, the final book of the Old Testament that we heard read in Malachi. If you celebrate Passover with, with any Jewish person today, there will be an empty seat at their table because they're expecting Elijah still to come. Uh, Elijah is supposed to come to prepare the way of the Lord. But if you heard what Elijah is supposed to do, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That phrase a decree of utter destruction, harem, is the phrase that is used over and over in Joshua. And Joshua, if you know, is that book that is all about them coming and destroying the Canaanites, those who are in the land that God had given Israel. And so here you have Malachi saying, you need to turn lest I, your God, destroy you, Israel. And there are other places in the Old Testament where so this, is, this is why it's so different from any other type of just like racial genocide. There's a threat that if you become apostate, I am going to destroy you. John the Baptist's job, we are told, as he takes this kind of Nazarite vow, which reminds us of Samson and others, where he's told, not to, Zechariah is told about him, he's not going to take strong wine and drink, he's uh, not going to cut his hair, things like that. He's supposed to make ready, for, make ready for the Lord. Are people prepared? How are they supposed to get ready? They're supposed to repent. Right? And so John the Baptist's ministry, starting in chapter 3, is known for what? He's known for being this wild and crazy prophet, living on locusts and honey, preaching, repent. But who is he preaching to? 
He's telling Israel to repent. He's not telling, as the Israelites would have expected, the Gentiles to repent. He's telling Israel to repent. He said, therefore, to the crowds, the crowds would have been Jews, the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You can't claim that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. When the king comes, there's going to be judgment. And the twist is that Israel, too, needs to be judged. Israel, too, needs to be judged. Let's take a second and ask ourselves, do, what, what, does God really need to judge? Does he really need to judge? Yes! Absolutely he needs to judge. And if you, this, this modern trope of, no, I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment, is pathetic. It's heartless. It's not actual love. How can you love someone and not want them to destroy what is destroying them? No, God better judge. If you want a desire, if you, if you have a desire for justice, that is a godly desire. We don't need to be ashamed of that. Absolutely. But, lest we become like the Israelites of the first century, when a Christian demands justice or judgment, they also always know that that demand goes inward as well. That if you decry the evil out there, you better be decrying the evil in your heart too. And this is exactly how we are to read the Ten Commandments. So if you read the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments, if you struggle with self-righteousness, read the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments because it will show you how far you are away from the law. So for example, thou shalt not steal, included under that commandment, how are we supposed to read that? Includes, do not be envious of those who prosper. Don't take, try to steal away their reputation. This is exactly what Jesus does, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't just murder, but don't be angry. Don't commit adultery, but also don't lust. We should want God to judge, but we also need to realize that if we really want that, there is a lot in us that needs judging. And that goes to my third minor point, which is that if the king has come to judge, hallelujah, he has come to judge himself. Because the Israelites didn't realize that if the kingdom of God was going to come for real, they weren't going to make it. We're in a far better place than Zechariah. He received this news But we don't have to pretend like we don't know where the story is going, right? 
he received this news, but there's going to be something new happen. Because John the Baptist is the greatest of the old. In chapter 7, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet, we need to enter the kingdom of God through Christ. Where do we see this in our passage? One hint, I think, is Gabriel is the angel that appears. We are told it's Gabriel. And where else do we see Gabriel? So far, we've only seen him in Scripture, I mean, so far. So far, we've only seen him in Daniel. He's the one that gives Daniel this prophecy of the coming of the end of the age. So in Gabriel, and in, John the in Gabriel's announcement about John the Baptist, we are supposed to see that as the beginning of the end. But I don't know if you've ever wondered why Luke does this birth narrative sequence the way he does. If you look at the first two chapters of Luke, you have the prologue, which we didn't read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good historian and tell you all about what's happening. And then you have John the Baptist's narrative, Jesus, uh, uh, prophecy of his birth, Jesus' prophecy. John the Baptist's birth, Jesus' birth. Why does he interweave them like that? Are they similar? Are they kind of like the same? I'm convinced that John the Baptist with Elizabeth and Zechariah and all this, this is Old Testament being fulfilled. But notice the contrast with Jesus. In Zechariah, you have a righteous Jew at the most holy moment of his life. He's struck mute. Doesn't believe the angel. Mary is a young, unmarried virgin. And she says, let it be to me according to your word. The priest in the Holy of Holies doesn't believe, but the young, unmarried virgin does. We are getting previews, I think, of this contrast. Because when the kingdom of God is coming with Jesus, we are actually going to have a chance to enter. There's a, a story of a Jewish rabbi saying, somebody asked him, hasn't the kingdom of God come already? And he looked out the window and he said, no, it hasn't come. Because they expected it to be what? Perfect and righteous when it came. That the new David was going to reign. And they expected that because the Old Testament told them to expect it. Except for all those parts about the suffering servant. Except for all those parts about, but when Israel is apostate, you are going to be judged. And so when God comes in Jesus, it is the beginning of the end. 
But hallelujah, he judges himself. So that we, pathetic sinners that we are, are actually going to have a chance to stand in the kingdom of God. That we can stand in front of the king. And so John the Baptist, the forerunner, has come to say, get ready. Repent. The only way that you are going to get to enter the kingdom of God is not on your righteousness. It's on the one that I have been sent to proclaim. I'd encourage you to read that meditation to help understand, not right now, later, to help just understand this delay in the kingdom of God. It has become, the the end has begun, but there are two parts. And so the end of Hebrews 9 says it this way, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, remember the book of Hebrews written 2,000 years ago? He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's been put away. Your sin has been put away. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that amazing? It's already been done once for all. He has judged sin in Christ. And when he comes... He's going to, he doesn't have to deal with your sin anymore. If you are in Christ, your sin has already been judged. Hallelujah. Christians are those who sing, right? Because of that. Do not be like Zechariah and be mute. If you were struck down mute, would much change? Do not be like Zechariah. Be like Mary and sing. So if the king has come, but he has come to judge himself, how are we to imitate John the Baptist? That's what I want to sit in for the remainder of this. And just a, a minor warning. When you're reading scripture at any times and your, your instinct, you're trying to imitate the character, have a a hesitation. Take a little break because you may be going wrong. The the quick jump to imitation gets us in weird wrong places. The point of David and Goliath isn't first be like David, it's first Jesus is your David, and then you can follow along. So for John the Baptist, we're going to be able to imitate him, but with a little nuance. So imitating him, I think the first sort of main, main point is that he is set apart for another. And you too, Christian, you too, every human ought to be, that is our calling, but you who are in Christ are set apart for another. John the Baptist, he had this special calling, Take this Nazarite vow. How many of you, when you heard that read, you're like, glad I don't have that calling. 
But your calling is harder. He has to avoid wine and drink and haircuts and other things. You have to die to your entire self. We are called to be set apart. Foreign people. Aliens and exiles. And Romans 12 tells us to not be conformed to this world. That's why Christmas is so weird for me. It seems like the world is being Christian, but it's not. The king has come. We have no other king. Is that true for you and your heart? Are you set apart? So we can imitate John the Baptist a little bit, but we are in a better place than him. We have a better foundation. He had this testimony of his father's vision from an angel. He had the testimony of the Old Testament. We have the fact that the king has already come. That we already know what judgment looks like. That what he's going to do with our sin, he did it to Jesus. We have a trailer of the movie that hasn't come out yet, but we know what it's going to be about. We have a better foundation than John the Baptist. So we can be more set apart than John the Baptist. But set apart for what? Set apart for another. You are set apart for another, not for yourself. John the Baptist becomes known For that thing he says in John's gospel, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. I can't imagine John the Baptist being accused of selfishness. Paul says similar things. I don't preach myself. I preach Christ and him crucified. Maybe some of you have seen this famous painting uh, that was painted in the time of a great plague, the early 1500s, called the Eisenheim altarpiece. And uh, it has Jesus almost on the cross, like almost looking like he has the plague to kind of comfort those who are suffering under this horrible uh, disease. And you have John the Baptist next to him. He's pointing. And John the Baptist should be known we call him the Baptist. The Orthodox usually call him the forerunner. I think that's better. He's pointing. He's always pointing away from himself. You have been given the secret of the universe. The purpose and mission of everything. And it is to point to Christ. You, your family, your job, the snow, it's all meant to point to Christ. How liberating that is. The king has come and you are not him. So you get to point away from yourself. In a world of narcissists, right? 
in a world where, where narcissism is, is expected, where it's applauded, we ought to stand out. Dying and behold, we live, Paul says. So I think that means we are set apart for another, meaning we are set apart for more. John the Baptist to me stands for someone who is just never satisfied. Poor guy. He was never satisfied. He's in prison and he's asking Jesus, are you really the one? And then and he's preaching against Herod and his infidelity and then he gets beheaded. He's never satisfied. And maybe this is another issue I have with Christmas. It just seems like we're called to be so content in the wrong things. Content in the wrong things. Are, is, what does it mean for a Christian to be content? I was always confused. You know, in college, U2, it was kind of hip, for at least for my age. I'm not that old. U2 was before me. But, like, U2 is kind of a cool Christian thing to be into. And their song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They say, I believe in the kingdom come. You bore my shame on the cross. And they're singing. But then they say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I was like, how can a Christian say that? You found it, man. You found Jesus. I think I'm finally starting to understand what they mean. Because you're still never satisfied. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, how could you ever be satisfied with this? How could you ever be satisfied with eat, drink, and be merry with Whatever else we're doing. And maybe you'll quote at me, Philippians 4. And my high school crush, I remember seeing in her Bible before I was even a Christian, she had Philippians 4 highlighted. That verse that is the most misquoted verse in all of Scripture, I can do all things through him, it strengthens me. Right before that, Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There it is, that word, content. The word is really, it's autarky, it's kind of like our autocratic. Uh, it's closer to self-sufficient. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance, and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does he mean by that? He means that his source of joy transcends the circumstances. The circumstances can never satisfy him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, does not mean I can change all the circumstances to my will. It means that circumstances can't touch me anymore. Because my source of joy is beyond them. And so, I kind of struggled as I was preparing this sermon. Is this just going to sound like some Grinch 
of a sermon right before Christmas. But I think the heart of it is everything else pales in comparison to knowing Christ. Why would you be satisfied in these circumstances? It makes sense then that Jesus can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. What a gospel we have to those, especially in this season of depression and discouragement and suicides. We have a gospel that says you don't have hope. You don't have hope in this world, especially 2020. I have the great news. Your hope doesn't depend on this world. How could you ever be satisfied with it? Do not be satisfied with it. The curse that Jesus gives, he says, woe to those who are full now. That's his woe. That's his curse. So, do you want Jesus to come? Like, do you want more of Jesus now? And now around here, we kind of say, the second coming is happening now by his spirit through the church He is coming now, and there's going to be a so-called second coming or third coming. But do you want Jesus to come like that new heavens, new earth comes at the end of the world? Do you want him to come now? That, I think, is a really good diagnostic question. How do you answer that? Because the martyrs in the book of Revelation say, when? Are you going to come? Hurry up. Those who are suffering and dying, those who are in need, say, come. But those of us who have it pretty good, we say, we say like Augustine, before he was Christian, he said, give me chastity, but not yet. Can I, let me finish my degree. Let me show my boss just how good I am first. Don't come yet. Man, how do you answer that question? Because how you answer that question tells you how you understand his first coming. Tells you how you understand John the Baptist. Because he's the Lord of Lords. And he has come to judge Himself, that's what he did. Do you want more of that? Do you want more of your own sin and the sin of those around you destroyed and eradicated and put to death? Is that what you want? Because that's what you should want. That is what we should yearn for when we say, Come, Lord Jesus. We can imitate John the Baptist at all times, pointing away from ourselves. He came in humility so that we can come to him, bringing nothing of ourselves and feasting, feasting on the king, living in the kingdom of God, the one thing that will actually satisfy us to be in his immediate presence.
to say, may you increase that I may decrease. That's where we find life. We find life in our death. Jesus was born to die so that we could live. That's God, we pray, come now, and we pray, give us the desire to want you to come. We pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit. Make us a church that is never satisfied and pointing away from ourselves to you, to what you're going to do, to what you have done. God, we thank you that you chose not to satisfy your justice and holiness and righteousness by judging us, but by judging yourself in Christ. Give us that faith to sing these incredible Christmas songs because we have tasted that the King is good and we want our life to image him. Make us more like him in Jesus' name. Amen.